Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We have around 6,000 members worldwide and around 50 branches. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 17th of April, 2023, and this is episode 296. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talked to Dr. Anne-Marie Einhaus, Associate Professor at the Department of Humanities at the University of Northumbria, about her research into heroism in literature during the First World War. Anne-Marie spoke to me from her office at the University of Northumbria. Anne-Marie, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in heroism and the Great War? Absolutely. Hello and thanks for having me. Um, So my name is Anne-Marie Einhaus and I teach and research uh, 20th century mostly British literature at Northumbria University in Newcastle. Um, As you can probably tell though by my name and accent, I'm originally from Germany um, and have lived here for over a decade now. So I should say right away, confess, so to speak, that um, heroism in First World War literature is really just a a small part of my research. Mostly I look at other things, also First World War related, um, and um, especially to do with short fiction, short stories about the First World War. But one of the notable things about short fiction in particular, as well as obviously novels, is that it was and is written for so many different audiences um, and lots of different styles uh, with lots of different kind of aesthetic, ideological positions. And as a result, it has a lot to say about cultural values, including portrayals of heroism or how people understood heroism. Um, So back in 2016, I was asked to contribute to a book um, that was titled Heroes and Heroism in British Fiction Since 1800. And that really sparked my particular interest in this. Um, So I'm kind of basing our talk today, um, our chat today on on that chapter and research for that chapter. Well, let's start with what is heroism? What does this mean when we talk about it? Could you sort of give give us a bit of definition? I mean, I suppose everyone will have their own definition, but speaking from a literary scholar's perspective of literature in this period, particular around the war itself and the immediate aftermath, um, I think we are talking increasingly less though still also about the things that pardon the joke get you mentioned in dispatches uh, and increasingly more about the you know the really mundane sticking it holding out uh, kind of democratic heroic ideals that more people can reasonably hope to achieve Um, so in short kind of yes a sense of duty a sense of endurance in the face of hardship um sticking things out in a really understated way that comes to be seen as almost default heroics, if that makes sense. So when we talk about heroism in literature, how does this manifest itself in the contemporary prose and poetry of the time? Mm. So I can speak more to the prose uh, because that's really my métier, but I will also try and mention poetry a little bit. Um, So I would say that Having looked at the period running up to the First World War and then what happens in First World War writing, there's there's kind of a shift, uh, as I said, from those active acts of heroism, which, of course, still continue and take new forms, you know, the, the kind of daring do style of, of heroics to this really mundane 
holding out and in sense of endurance. So the mold, in a way, is the the colonial hero, often the soldier hero. I mean, if we think, you know, Tommy Atkins and also Gunga Dean, uh, that that's the kind of mold that writers during the First World War are kind of setting themselves apart from, but also still speaking to and, and modifying. So the shift had really happened before the First World War. Increasingly, I think, in the late 19th century, we already see this idea of endurance as heroism. But then during the First World War, for various reasons, that really takes hold and is, is kind of consolidated in a lot of the writing that we see produced in that period, even though that coexists with the older type of, you know, winning the VC type uh, trench raid heroism. And so obviously we all know as uh, First World War aficionados that it's a, it's a citizen effort. And I think to me, that's reflected in the literature, and that's also what drives this move to heroism as endurance in the literary texts of the time. So the fact that we have citizen soldiers and civilian war workers joining the war effort en masse, um, that means the parameters of heroism have to have to change a bit so that they can accommodate a greater range of people. Um, so we see literary interpretations of heroism that in the grand scale of things might not seem particularly heroic, certainly to earlier audiences, perhaps, um, but that in the context of the war and this this mass mobilization of people both at home and, and at the front um, come to be meaningful and, and kind of comforting, I guess, as well. So just to give you a few specific examples, um, during the war, we have um, stories like Sapper's Private Merrick company idiot which is a, a bit of a favorite of mine um, I don't know if you know it but I highly recommend looking it up if you don't and um, that's really about a man the uh, private Merrick company idiot of the title who joins the army is sort of persuaded to join up and is really not cut out to be a soldier at all let alone you know a, a, a traditional hero who will go forth and do great things but he dreams of that he reads his Kipling he's really keen to, to make his mark and to achieve something. And we have this ongoing dialogue between his um, company commander and the, the company sergeant who take really different views of him. So the, the commanding officer um, believes that he can make good in some way because he has the right spirit. He has the, the right intentions. The sergeant is much more down to earth and less idealistic and says, you know, that man's going to disgrace us all and he's going to, you know, get himself killed. And in a way, they're both right. That's kind of the, the ending of the story. Spoilers. Um, they're both right in that he tries to do something really heroic, which is to to crawl out of uh, shelter under fire and, and mend a broken telephone wire. But he gets it completely wrong. He just picks up two random bits of wire, tries to stick them back together and dies in the attempt. And they find him later and work out what's happened. So in a way, that's a shift in terms of how heroic actions are interpreted, they don't necessarily have to be successful. They don't even have to make much sense. It's more about the, the spirit of the thing and the determination. Um, and I suppose a related kind of heroism is the, the sort of rather dogged and grim endurance that we see in some really well-known texts like Journey's End, for example, or um, Herbert Reed, who's a, a modernist writer and artist who you might be familiar with. Um, he writes a really blistering story called Killed in Action, where we see men you know, really scared uh, and manifesting a lot of the physical symptoms of being really scared. I won't go into scatological detail there but sticking it out regardless you know and, and kind of holding out regardless um, and, and going on to, to fight and going into battle so a lot of these kind of texts 
are now read as really anti-war. That's, I think, especially happened with um, something like Journey's End, but weren't intended as such necessarily or not fully intended as such. And even where they were, such as, uh, I suppose, Aldington's Death of a Hero, they still, in the process of dismantling a certain idea of pre-war heroism, managed to create a new heroic ideal. Uh, so kind of replacing the old with, with a new form of, of heroism that's more about that holding out and facing fear and facing demands um, on your courage in a way that's often really hopeless and, and, and rather depressing, but nevertheless showcases this holding out, this endurance. I don't know if you want me to go on. I do have civilian examples as well. <laughs> yeah, so yes, um, this doesn't stop at soldiers. Uh, it's it's actually also, um, so obviously fiction about the First World War was, wasn't just written for and about soldiers. It's also primarily written for people at home. And of course, civilians at home were involved in this war to an unprecedented extent as well. And they, in a sense, also needed heroic ideals to which they could aspire, which were necessarily going to be much more mundane. But this wartime heroism is also reinterpreted for them, if you like. So one example I thought of in, in advance of this recording was a, a short story by a popular writer, J.E. Buckrose, um, which is the pen name of Annie Edith Jameson. Uh, that was published in 1917. And she actually called the collection of stories Wartime in Our Street, the story of some companies behind the firing line. So equates civilians and, and soldiers in that sense. And the story I was thinking of immediately um, when you invited me on the podcast was um, one called One of the Old Guard, which somewhat picks up the, I guess, the conceit of the title and is about an old lady who has nothing whatever really to do with the front line. She doesn't have a son in the war either. She has a daughter who previously was a bit sickly, but has now gone off to um, work in a munitions factory. And this old lady's contribution to the war effort is, is really explicitly portrayed as she's holding out. She's enduring loneliness because her daughter's not there um, and not being able to get out because there's no one to you know pick her up and, and take her out on an outing. So her contribution is to sit there in her armchair to knit for the soldiers at the front and, and basically endure, hold out. So this endurance type of heroism, heroism as endurance, uh, is, is kind of touted for civilians at the same time as it is for um, for soldiers at the front line. And just, just as an aside, I was just wondering about the gender and social class of these sort of heroes in the literature. For instance, is it before the war, is it all sort of, you know, white men uh, of the middle class gentleman types um, who do daring do and, and, you know, defeat the enemies of the empire? And that changes in the Second World War to other people from different social classes and even women. Pretty radical stuff. Does that shift take place? Yeah, absolutely. That's something that we definitely already see in First World War writing as well. Um, so first of all, um, I know most people are very familiar with the, the boys' stories of heroics and heroism that are written before and during the First World War, but they exist for they exist for for girls as well. And we see it, I think, increasingly a trend that middle class girls get an education very similar or increasingly very similar to their brothers. So, of course, there's the aspiration to also be able to do something. Um, there's a nice example uh, that I was able to think of, um, of fiction for young women where, let me just find it in my notes. Uh, yes, by Edgar Wallace, actually, um, called The Dispatch Rider, which comes out in Strand magazine early in the war, I think December 1914, where a young woman enlists in 
what I think is meant to be a bit of a parody of the, the Fannies, uh, a mounted nurse and dispatch rider corps. And uh, she enlists in that pre-war. Her fiancé, who's an officer in the British Army, is uh, is not impressed and you know tells her off. She gets very offended and hands back her engagement ring and then goes on a solo motoring tour of France. And of course, as you might expect, gets caught up in the war tries to get back via Ostend uh, regardless because that's where her ticket takes her and then ends up blundering into the fighting zone and carrying dispatches uh, between scattered French and British army posts uh, and, and manages to save her fiancé's regiment. And of course, they're reunited at the end. And this might sound ludicrous, but you know, in a sense, it's it's just a continuation of those pre-war ideas of heroism, but inclusive of inclusive of women. So allowing the female readers of that magazine to imagine themselves part of the action in the same way that, you know, a lot of young boys were encouraged to do in, in pre-war and wartime fiction. So I'm thinking, you know, Richard Bird, Eden Philpotts, they both write um, they're just two examples. They both write that sort of boys' fiction. You know, schoolboy ranker goes to the front and uh, manages to single-handedly take out a German trench, etc. Um, that definitely then exists for for other groups as well. But as in the example I gave earlier of the old lady who seemed to be heroic in holding out at home, it's also broadened and doesn't always take the form of actually making it to the front and you know making good in battle. So who, I mean, this, this is a huge question, but who writes this type of literature and who for and what is their motivation? I know that in itself is a huge, huge question, but if you've got one or two examples, that'd be really helpful. Yeah, I mean, it, it is a difficult question just because there's such diversity. I think mostly when people think of First World War writing, they will think of, you know, soldier narratives. Um, and that's obviously just a really small fraction. I'd say that the majority of texts written about the First World War during the First World War and after are actually for civilians, because obviously in the grand scheme of things, the majority of readers are civilians and not all soldiers at the front, as you know, various colleagues who've researched this have shown, were even interested in reading soldier narratives. You know, they, they might prefer to read something about civilian life, historical fiction, adventure. So a lot of this stuff is written for civilians in one way or another, often for younger audiences, for women, um, like the examples I've cited. And where they're written for men, um, they're not necessarily written for, for military men. So I'd say a lot of it is where we get the, the grand old heroics, it's often wish fulfillment rather than trying to be realistic in any way. Um, and where we get soldiers writing about this, especially after the war, it often does take a slightly a, a slightly bitter turn or a grimmer turn, but not necessarily an anti-war turn. So often it, it really is about showcasing a particular type of heroism as holding out. Um, and even, you know, a, a novel that I think was intended to be an anti-war novel, like All Quiet on the Western Front, actually showcases that sort of heroism and showcases it quite explicitly. So in some ways, when you read it, it's actually surprising how much it's been received as an anti-war novel, when actually there's a lot of pride in, you know, endurance and holding out. Um, I've mentioned Richard Aldington's Death of a Hero already, and I know you had Viv uh, Welton on a while ago talking about Aldington and that particular novel. But that's the same thing. You know, it's really bitter about a lot of aspects of the protagonist's life and Aldington's own life, but actually also really proud of achievements during the war and especially the sense of endurance, I would say. 
just and I'm not afraid another aside but were these books actually commercially successful did they actually sell yeah absolutely I mean of course some um sold really well because they fitted into a particular mold but I think they were successful because they spoke to particular kind of interests and anxieties so another example I was able to think of um, you know just thinking through the topic in advance is um Richard, I think it's Richard Marsh's Sam Briggs VC, which, uh, yes, it is, which was serialized again in, in a popular magazine in the Strand. And that tells a really familiar story that we just see over and over and over again of the the young man who's, you know, a, a really meek, pretty uninteresting clerk, often, you know, white collar workers, and who goes off to war and, and comes back a man. Um, so it, it's really bound up with people's interest in masculinity state of the nation and so on and so forth and these things definitely did sell because i think they allowed civilians at home a kind of imaginative participation in the war that otherwise they might not have had and perhaps were also quite reassuring because obviously if you have people that you've sent off to the front you'll be anxious about them and to have this sort of reassuring fiction obviously helped during the war how comforting something like All Quiet on the Western Front or uh, Death of a Hero were after the war is another question, but I don't think they were intending to be. Um, and yeah, those those things, of course, also sold well, if only because of the controversy. Um, I know that in your earlier podcast, uh, Viv mentioned that Aldington's novel appeared with um, asterisk out uh, passages, which were censored. Um, and I think that in itself was a great, you know, that that was a great, a great draw in a way, because it seemed risque and people did want to work out, you know, what, what might possibly have been left out. Um, in fact, the first time I read Death of a Hero, it was the copy that's still in the university library in um, Durham University. And I could see that whoever had read it had tried with the, the shorter omissions to work out exactly what expletives had been blanked out. So they were in the margins with question marks. I actually found out who that was years later. And was it somebody famous? Um, I don't think I can reveal. Oh, well, would that miss I also have a, a bit of a career in academia, but uh, I, I don't think I'm at liberty to give away their name. Well, on that, on that bombshell, we'll move on to the next question. So obviously literature... Um, was uh, reflecting society. So what type of broad factors in sort of Edwardian um, civic space and society were driving this type of literature? What sort of societal values were reflected in, in the prose that you've talked about? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'll start by saying that as far as I'm concerned, at any point in time, you have in a way two different kinds of literature. And that's true here as well. And I've talked about it already. You have the the mainstream type of literature that kind of broadly speaking affirms or uh, echoes existing social values, moral values, um, aesthetic values as well. So it tends to be fairly conventional. And then you get the, the more experimental avant-garde writing that seeks to challenge those values. Um, in this case, I think we see that, yeah, mainstream literature, popular literature very much affirms the old style heroism and the old style perception of, you know, what it means to be a man in wartime or a woman in wartime. So kind of active versus passive. By contrast, I think we begin to see that shift in the avant-garde writing or the more experimental writing that starts to question this idea of the male hero or male heroism as as active and female passive endurance uh, and those kind of get mixed up not necessarily 
flipped but mixed up. So in both of those cases, though, I think there are driving forces, some of which I've already mentioned, that inform this engagement with heroism. And I would say that certainly concerns about the state of the nation often, you know, when you look at them from a modern day perspective, really troubling eugenicist concerns, you know, about the so-called English race, you know, is, is it still up to snuff? Would it hold up uh, under fire, literally? Um, those come in, you know, are, are people still fit to fight? And there's a lot of writing around that, such as Private Myrick, Company Idiot, in fact, you know, that kind of questions whether the ordinary English man, also working class man in particular, is is up to the uh, the war effort, if you like. And that, that dates back to well before the First World War actually happens. We have educational concerns. So how can obviously leaders be educated and prepared, um, you know, future leaders of empire or the army, um, public schools play a role in that. But actually, it extends beyond that, because you you don't just need leaders, you also need people who are able to to follow, if you like. Um, and it's I think it's really noteworthy that some of the, the daring do type texts, your henties, etc., are actually not just read by public school boys. They're very much also read by, you know, working class or middle class boys, and they're given out as prizes in um, publicly funded, so not public schools, but state funded schools as well. Um, and of course, all of this is tied in with concerns around empire, the future of the empire, maintaining it, uh, increasing competition in the colonial arena, and of course, anxieties around gender relations, which are very visible in, in these kinds of stories where you know there's a questioning of the male sphere versus the female sphere um especially after the war you know we have the, the clash of the returning hero who comes back to maybe find his job taken by a woman and of course inevitably romance ensues in those kinds of stories but all of that anxiety around gender roles also comes comes into these stories very much so and my final question is where can people learn more about your work uh, well, they can put my name into a search engine, Anne-Marie Einhaus, just one E in Anne, please, uh, like a reverse Anne of Green Gables, if that means anything to the Western Front Association listeners. Um, so they can put my name into any search engine and just search for Anne-Marie Einhaus Northumbria, and that will bring up my profile. Um, I have a current project on war literature and ephemera uh, with a few colleagues. So uh, that should be findable simply by Googling uh, Northumbria War Ephemera, or they can go to research.northumbria.ac.uk slash war ephemera. And if anyone would like to read the chapter that I wrote about heroism in war literature at some point, I'm afraid it's published in a hideously expensive academic book, but uh, please do drop me an email and I'll be very happy to forward it. Anne-Marie, thank you very much for your time. Thanks very much for having me. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.